Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Saturn Vox podcast, where discussions of philosophy meet the liminal space we weave in dreams. This is your host and devotee of erotic mysticism, Michaela Ann. Today, we are welcoming guest Connor Marvin, Sufi initiate and ceremonial magician, to talk about grail mythology and the mystic perception of love. What makes a lover? How might occultists benefit from utilizing esoteric chivalry? What is so important about martial energy? What elements might allow a story to stand the test of time? Connor and I explore all this and more, starting with the grail and freely flowing into conversations of erotic mysticism from the Sufic perspective of Connor's studies. It is a great episode filled with historical information and nuggets of wisdom alike. Listen all the way to the end to hear the amazing poem Connor wrote while on silent meditation retreat. We know you love a good poem about sex and God. All this and more on today's episode of Saturn Vox. To find more on Saturn Vox, check out their Instagram and Twitter at Saturn Vox, or visit their website www.saturnvox.com. If you want to support the show towards goals of better equipment, merch, and bonus material, please check out the Patreon at www patreon.com slash saturnvox, where one can join in on our book club and discord community. So yeah, I'm Connor. Um, I am a um, Sufi meditation instructor and tarot reader and uh, occasional talismaner um, and a bunch of other things. I teach ceremonial magic classes at Ritual Craft School uh, and I'm obsessed with the the grail myths. I, I went to Naropa University and for some reason, I decided every paper didn't matter what class it was. I was going to write uh, every large paper in my entire time there on the the Holy Grail. So, um, and and since then, that's just accelerated. Wow! So it's kind of like uh, an archetypal story that can be fit into so many different avenues then if you were able to use it in every class I, it is naropa university and so they're a little <laughs> it's it, naropa is like uh hippie hogwarts um and so but and I, and I was a psychology major and so you know i i'm i made it i tried to make it make sense but there was some like uh, diversity seminar and I still wrote it on <laughs> on the grail notes, but yeah so um for for people who may not know 
do you mind giving us a little bit of background info on what we mean when we say grail mythology? So in in the the twelfth century, um, Le Conte du Graal by Chrétien de Troyes, um, late twelfth century, is the first use of the word grail, um, and at, at that time in Western Europe. You know, there wasn't TV, there wasn't entertainment was really there were still holdovers from the pre-Christian kind of bardic traditions of how the the courts um, and the aristocracy wanted to be entertained as they would have someone maybe playing a harp and then someone would tell a story or read a, a poem that might last hours or it might even last multiple days. And so in that time there were kind of like stories that became like hits like like marvel you know classics or something and and there were there were a couple sort of like topics and but a big one was the arthurian romance tradition and yeah Cretien de Troyes was the first to articulate this sort of mysterious image of the grail where, where the, the knight goes on this quest and ends up in this magical castle. And there's this weird procession that happens where, where this thing called the growl or grail, um, gets, gets brought out. Um, and he doesn't ask any questions about it because he's been told that's rude. And, and there's a wounded King and there's all of these other, there's all these other things. Part of my interest in it is that, the Arthurian romance tradition became a, a shelf on which to stack heresies because it was so popular with the aristocracy. Everyone wanted to hear stories about King Arthur that the church couldn't really touch it. And so elements of pre-Christian, you know, pagan, Celtic and Germanic goddess worship got kind of hidden in in this tradition you know heterodox elements of christian mysticism uh sufism all these things got a, kind of got put in the arthurian romance tradition and they're preserved there it was like this way for people to um you know any sort of like teachings or whatever not any maybe but um this way for for these teachings to be transmitted in a way that wouldn't get you burned at the stake. So then the what you're kind of implying is that these stories in and of themselves are pagan stories that predate Christianity, but ideas like the grail and certain other ways that the stories are maintained today in the romance tradition are very much these like, occulting these ideas hiding them within other stories yeah and the you know the grail itself as as the chalice and obviously that's a familiar christian image um you know one one of the fairly obvious heresies is that the grail is the holiest object in christendom because it uh contains the blood of christ but supposedly so does every eucharistic chalice at every mass in the entire world and so why would you have to go on a quest why would you have to go find this 
this sort of like otherworldly, you know, maybe fairy castle to encounter a chalice that contains the blood of Christ. And the implication is that at, you know, in the church, they're no longer giving the real deal. Oh, wow. Yeah, my raised in Catholic school, like childhood trauma shuddered at that thought even. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So potentially when there may have been this idea, especially in like areas like England and France and Germany, that they understood religious authorities to have some sort of ability to do magic and maybe without that ability as the catholic church claims we don't do magic we don't debatable but they Mm. claim that uh that maybe it would cause the consciousness of the community to question whether they actually could create the miracle of transubstantiation Mm -hmm which for those who don't know is the changing of the wine into blood. And I like this like language of of the the consciousness of a of a people or a culture still retaining and still holding on to elements that become repressed and so another big you know thing was like goddess worship. This is shortly after this that we see all of these fame now famous cathedrals dedicated to our lady of whatever um dedicate and mm-hmm. the and the black madonnas and the and this sort of like cult of mary um comes shortly after the proliferation of these arthurian romances and the fact that the holiest object in all of christendom is carried by a woman is relevant because that you that is not something that you see or that you saw um in churches yeah i mean and it almost sounds more like it wasn't even just an attempt to obscure pagan beliefs but maybe even an attempt to obscure gnostic Mm -hmm. beliefs as in we as gnostics you know believe in Mary Magdalene as an embodiment of divine feminine archetype, but we're not allowed to talk about that. So let's put her in a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the it the vagueness of the Grail because like a, a question I often get is like, what is the Grail? Um, which is like the most complicated, you know, it's this really simple question of like, I don't even know what you're talking about with a really complicated answer. Because on one hand, it's just like this relic of like Joseph of Arimathea, you know, collected Christ's blood at the crucifixion from his side wound. um, And it's carried in procession, um, always with, with the lance or spear. And that would be the lance of Longinus or Longinus. Um, the centurion who who pierced Christ's side, and there you have the the yoni lingam. You have the you know the phallic and the vaginal um, carried in procession together. But the the question of like what is the Grail gets into a lot of kind of more gnostic, more mystic um, territory. Of there's this implication of like the Grail is. The Grail is Mary, maybe both Marys. Um, the the Grail is the heart, 
synonymous with Mary, as in if the chalice of the heart, the womb within the heart is sort of purified, then the descent of, of the dove of the Holy Spirit can impregnate the heart, which then gives birth to Christ or God in human. And yeah, and that wasn't something the the church was handing out on Sunday. <laughs> no, they had to maintain authority somehow. I'm thinking like, as far as, as I, what I know of the legends, and I did, I did read them all as a young child. I think there's something to be said about how these stories still affect us even to this day. Uh, in fact, didn't they just make a movie on the Green Knight mm-hmm. stuff? I'm picky about Arthur and just because I'm such a, it's I I just have so much, and they did a really good job. There's there's elements where I'm like ah that kind of twists the point of the narrative, um, but in terms of like creating this sort of initiatory otherworldly vibe, they like nailed it. Nice. Yeah, I loved it. it. I think they did a good job as well. Um, but it does, it does like, it seems like even though that story wasn't about Arthur and the Grail, there was still an implication of eternal life or how to obtain life after death or prolonged life or a spiritual life in some way. Uh, that it does seem like maybe that was regardless of what is the grail seems like the purpose of the grail was to provide this eternal life am i am i right about that i think talking about this in sir gawain and the green knight is not part of the the grail myth um the grail's not referenced and and sir gawain it's often percival and then later galahad that is the 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 grail knight but there's a couple elements there and one of the most obvious one for anyone familiar with the story is that he's going to his death the whole time. Um, he's on, on this quest and basically he's trying to find his own death. He's agreed to get his head chopped off and everyone's like, you don't have to go. And he's like, no, 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 but my honor like everything is about honor. Everything is about integrity. I would rather die an honorable, an honorable knight than I could just sit here and ignore the fact that there's this green knight a year and a day waiting later waiting for me in some green chapel who's going to chop my head off. And I could just go on doing whatever I want. And so there's this... So. It, it's not unique to Sufism and, and, you know, you see this in the old, the ancient, like um, classical, like mystery cults of, but the Sufi motto is die before death. And, and this is kind of what's, what's implied here that, um, and, and you, you also see this in Christianity of like um, that Christ conquers death. Um, that, that death is no longer, and, and you can get into kind of like a cult territory here if you want of being like, all right, we're, we're building an astral body that we can just like kind of hit the eject button at the moment of death and just continue to uh, retain our consciousness and maybe reincarnate, maybe, maybe not. I do think that that's an element of, of the grail 
Um, I don't think that it's, it's like, I, I also really do like the, um, Oh, what is it? Uh, Indiana Jones and the quest for the grail. I, I think that they did a great job. Um, and it's interesting in that because it's presented as like, if you drink this, then you like live forever. Or you come back to life or, or whatever the thing is. Um, but at the end of the movie, Indiana Jones turns to his dad and he's like, okay, you finally, his dad was obsessed with the grail his whole life. He finally found it. And he says, what did you find? And he replies, illumination. And so I think it, I don't think that it's, it's a eternal life in a, in a literal sense, obviously. And I think that it's more than just like, oh, we get to live forever in heaven that the grail can be seen as as maybe you know to to attain the grail is to attain god realization in like more of a yogic sense um and at that point when the the small i is dead and 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 no longer what your identification is with then there can be no death you're identified with everything and so I mean, besides the fact that that's so very clearly the underlining message of any, you know, uh, mystic tradition, regardless of whether we're talking about Judaism, Christianity, Sufism, uh, the, the, you know, yogic uh, mystery traditions, Tantra. What is your opinion on why sex so often is a part of that? And like, why is it a chalice and a lance? You know, we're talking to, to go back to Sir Gawain, the Green Knight, you know, sex and death are are interwoven in that, that he has to pass this test. And I also OK, so this is a great place to go on a little rant about like uh, like gender and things like that, because I think that, you know, we, we are talking about like you know, masculine and feminine and these things. And, and these have been, I think, like misunderstood and a lot of ne like neo-tantra kind of, this is something that I've learned from studying, you know, medieval literature is that like, it's totally arbitrary. This stuff is made up. People who are like, I, we need to reestablish traditional gender roles have no idea what traditional gender roles were and so the test for the knight the knight is this virginal virtuous like knight who's like and then there's this like lustful woman trying to like slip into his bed and he's like no milady uh you know you're so uh you know i don't want to be rude but you know and he has to sort of uh you know he wants to but he has the test is for him to like re resist her advances and you see this going back um the initiatrix of cacolan the sort of archetypal um irish hero is is a woman and there's a similar test that he's put to of um and so i think we have a a modern sense of like men as chasing women and then if you look back at like medieval europe it's like these poor men are just getting like bombarded by the and they're just trying to be virtuous and pure um <laughs> and i think that it has to do with the so the phallus as it manifests in a human body 
is merely a um, an echo of the this principle. And so the, you know, the lance or the tree or the, you know, you see the tree in the well is kind of an older Celtic image for the same thing. And you see the tree neck, you know, the, the hazel tree and the hazelnuts are dropping into the well of wisdom and being eaten by the salmon of wisdom that's then eaten by the, the, you know, hero who attains, you know, realization that the the act of creation you know thinking about ritual what is ritual doing and part of what it's doing is it is re rebodying remembering re uh reenacting uh a mythological moment that the greeks would call the the aetion of of the ritual and the most universal mythological moment is we are all here because of sex and this incredible mystery that uh that consciousness emerges from there's this like you know thing that that like you know is pleasurable and and all of a sudden you know at its apex often the ego disappears temporarily there's no sense of i anymore and then somehow as a result of that, sometimes uh, a new human consciousness emerges mysteriously out of a human body. Um, and and this is this is also just the closest myth to us, because, you know, whether or not we we think about it or what we think about it or whatever, um, that's that's the reality for every human is that our genesis is the same you know i i I think it's more complex than than like oh there's a yonic symbol and there's a phallic symbol therefore it's about you know it's about sex or or maybe in and i do think that there's like encoded kind of like um you know potentially sexual or sacralized sex or sexual ritual um in in the grail myths but I also think that uh, that it's like that's how humans create, and that's also how God creates. Um, but but the the phallus and yoni of God are these fundamental building blocks of reality, and trying to um, if that is how something is created, we can also create something by engaging with with those principles and bringing those principles into union that we can also create a sort of magical child you know I- including um the sort of you know divina- divinization of the self or the birth of the the you know cosmic christ within the the womb of the heart or whatever so it's like even if you think about it from a geometry perspective or geometric perspective uh the most basic shapes are circles and lines Mm -hmm. everything is kind of made out of circles and lines i mean circle being the perfection of the line but every other platonic solid is built up of lines that intersect Mm -hmm. so there's there's definitely that encoded even in um 
even in how we as humans, you know, advanced consciousness into the computer, which is its own wormhole. We don't have to go down whether or not the computer has consciousness, but there is that one and zero, one and zero. That's how we encoded it. So it's the same kind of concept in that way. I think it's it's very uh, beautiful and fun to play with. I love that you brought up the geometry because I also have, have studied kind of like sacred geometry and, and things like that. And so in, in the Grail myths, you have the four suits of the tarot represented. You have the sword, you have the stone, you know, which would be pentacles, which would be earth. You have the lance or spear, which would be wands. And then you have the, the chalice and cups. So, so a spear, it's, it's directional um, and it's everything comes to a point. And so in sacred geometry, that's the tip of the pencil um, that it's like the, there's a blank, you know, page and then the pencil, you know, indicates a single line that there's, um, it goes forward, whereas the sword cuts. And so if you have a blank page um, and you put a line on it, all of a sudden it delineates right and left. You put another line, you know, you can, it's, it's the, um, it's the, the tool and principle of separation. Um, and so relating to the mind, it's like uh, the, okay, this is going to be good for me. This is going to be bad for me. I like this. I don't like this. You know, all of these things that the mental faculty or the sort of prajna or piercing insight can sort of discern. And then you have the the compass, um, which which takes that that point and that line and and, ex, you know, does something different with it. And then you have it also delineates, but it's an inside and an outside. And but ultimately, it's a thing of inclusion. It's saying, okay, everything in here is everything in here. And then the, you know, the earth, the stone would be the page itself. So it's sort of the ground on which all of this is emerging. And you do have these, you know, the two most famous images. People often forget about the lance and the grail procession, but it's like you have the grail and the lance and you have the sword and the stone. Those are the most lasting you know, people who know may have never read or been exposed to these things have some sense of like that has stuck in collective consciousness. Yeah, it's like it's this really interesting thing about these types of stories when they last this long, you know, there's something to them. Uh, I mean, because realistically, the these stories existed before christendom entered into the region and then that brings up a whole nother can of worms about did you know eastern europe already have a mystic tradition that's like now completely lost uh except maybe embedded in these romance retellings of the arthurian legends so that was kind of yeah that was that's what got me obsessed is i was like because I was a, a kind of Celtic reconstructionist pagan for a long time. And, you know, with with my accompanying festering resentment against, you know, organized religion, 
Um, but I was reading all these books and I was like, no one's citing sources. Did some white lady in Wisconsin make this up five years ago? Or is this actually what the ancient Druids are doing? And then the more I dug, I was just like, nobody knows what the ancient Druids were doing. Nobody knows what like that tradition is not intact, but the place, the, the Celtic myths are really hard to kind of decode. They're hard to pull stuff out of. Whereas the, the Arthurian myths, like whatever surviving remnants um, of that older tradition that is now lost to us, like I, I came to the conclude, and I'm not the only one that came to this conclusion, I was pointed to this conclusion, is that that's, that's where they're most intact, that's where they're most accessible. Um, and it's not, and, and I originally approached it from this sort of, you know, angry pagan perspective of like, all right, I got to take all the evil Christianity out of this. We've all been there. <laughs> yeah. And I very quickly realized that not only is that not possible, that's, that's actually not, you know, you lose the whole thing. There's a lot of really, really cool stuff in, in Christianity that, that may be heterodox, but even, you know, like, there's also cool, you know, some of the works of the saints, some of the, you know, like people were having experiences. Um, and I think the big, the big thing that is acknowledged in, in the grail myths is that the, the destruction of the feminine has caused a, a wound on the inner plane and that is that is destroying everything that the there's a there's a wasteland that is caused by this unhealing wound in the fisher king which can be seen as this sort of degenerated piscean archetype um and he he's sort of the unregenerate christ that can neither die nor resurrect um, and, and he's wounded in his thigh symbolically, uh, in his generative region. And, uh, and then the, the wasteland around him, um, is, is, you know, the waters don't flow the, you know, the birds don't sing, the trees don't bear fruit, all of these things. And this is incredibly relevant for us. Currently, we are living in the wasteland and there's this implication that the, that the inner plane and the the life force the lifeblood of of the earth um and and the um you know all of these sort of this spiritual ecology that is meant to keep everything you know in harmony and and abundance and all this has receded and there's this somewhat obscure grail text called the um the elucidation of the grail and it's the only one that describes why the wasteland happened. And it says that there was this, there used to be these um, well maidens that were maybe priestesses that were maybe otherworldly, you know, sort of like fairy, you know, goddesses or, or, or beings of some sort. Um, and they would provide, you know, wisdom and comfort to travelers passing through. And, and they, they were sort of the guardians of, of the ancient wells, which were the access to the, this otherworldly, 
you know, literally the lifeblood of the earth <clears throat> come bubbling up at these springs. And then this evil king comes along and he wanted to possess the, the well maidens. And so him and his knights um, like rape all of the well maidens and then they recede and then this causes the wasteland. Um, and so it's an acknowledgement that not just Christianity, um, but Christianity definitely and just culture in general has has almost declared war on on the feminine and as a result of that everything is fucked <laughs> and and so in order to uh in order to repair that the knight has to go on a quest for the chalice um has to go on a quest to sort of integrate this yonic principle um, within himself. And when the grail is achieved, um, the waters of life will flow again, the wasteland will be healed, all of these, all these things. But it's interesting, because the implication is almost like, we can't, like no single person at this point, can resurrect the well, well maidens for the totality of of human creation. Mm -hmm. But you as a single individual king of within your own kingdom can drink some of the water that has been hidden away and in that way receive their own, you know, Christ consciousness or exalted you know, harmony, hermaphroditic consciousness in in they're in themselves, but not, not to save all the rest of everyone. Does that seem correct? So there's, there's a couple, there's so many versions of the grail myth. Um, and so the, the Arthurian romance tradition is ultimately a tragedy. And it's, it's a tragedy because, you know, you have Lamort Arthur, you have the death of Arthur, where it's like the, the grail quest where all the in later versions all of the knights of the round table um basically scatter that it was like the round table was this sort of you could you know think of like shambhala or or any of these sort of enlightened kingdoms where everyone's you know this realized being and and that is dispersed as they all individually go to um, go to seek the grail. And, and so the tragedy is that, um, is that basically like, you know, this enlightened, this ideal of this enlightened kingdom and enlightened kingship doesn't last, uh, that it falls apart. And, but the tragedy is also in many cases that someone attains the grail and then them and the grail disappear into the inner plane. No one else can get to it. This is giving me a Mahayanan feels because it's like, oh, he, he achieved enlightenment and then he popped out of existence mm -hmm. instead of choosing to, to stay and compassionately teach the other. So there is, so that's some versions but there's also some versions where I talked about the healing of the wasteland, where when the grail is achieved, um, it, it's called the freeing of the waters um, and the flowering of, of logras. So logras, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but it's, it's sort of like the inner plane 
kind of it's like the inner landscape and so there there are these versions where it's like if the sing if the individual can accomplish this you know the most difficult feat of human consciousness and and you know achieve or attain the grail then that that will translate to um, that that inner plane wound being healed and therefore the forces of the inner plane coming back and sort of you know re- resurrecting and redeeming both the you know the inner landscape and the outer landscape I like that I like the idea that the healing that I do within the three-dimensional like mundane world affects the the subconscious the dream the dream space the the shared heart of all humanity's consciousness i like that idea and i think that that for me personally is is what a large part of what my magic is about although i i understand that that's not everybody's goal but it it's a part of mine um yeah liberation of all beings are bust yeah exactly like i i could care less about just me what good is my liberation no man is free so long as any one man is enslaved type thing um so so the next thing that i'm thinking here i want to ask a little bit about morgan lafay I feel like what you're talking about, this like demonization of the feminine and how different textual sources of these stories will give you different ideas. Since some of them, I know she's his sister, she's spurned for whatever reason, and some I think she's was a former lover who was spurned and replaced by Guinevere. You know, sometimes people will say she is Fae, she's a part of the Fae, that's why it's Morgan Love Fae. What does that imply? If And what, what are the different implications about if she is Fae, if she is an otherworldly thing? What does it mean to be a sister? What does it mean to be a wife? Mm. Um, is it the same thing? Because in a lot of mystic traditions, there is this sister-wife thing that goes on. Mm-hmm. So what what are your thoughts on all that? So the this gets into the the pre-Christian Celtic conceptualization of kingship. So you know, generally it was male kings were were sort of were ruling, um, you know, or or in a smaller scale chieftains or or whatever. Um, but they're there was this the marriage to the queen the queen was an embodiment of the goddess of sovereignty and so she represented the landscape over which the king ruled and he only ruled because of her love and Mm -hmm. so if if he ever and so this is the thing that you know there's like some polyamorous stuff that that i think got later got like you know, confused, um, because court, courtly love was adulterous period. It was not, it had nothing to do with marriage because at that time marriage was seen, it was just a political social arrangement. The church 
kind of denigrated any kind of fleshly love, including the type of love that we exalt of this love story. And then people get together and they get married and all these things. That was not a thing. Um, we could get into this if we want that the fact that you, uh, the fact that people grow up with a, with this romantic thing of like, I'm going to fall in love with someone, then marry them and spend my life with them. And the fact that their love songs on the radio and all these things is in no small part, a result of these poets in, in the 12th century from the 12th century on going and meeting Sufis. Um, and the Sufis had a, an incredibly developed and sophisticated and exalted um, practice of and teachings around love. And so you, you have Lancelot and Guinevere are in love. And in my opinion, that's fine. Uh, but there's also this thing of as soon as Arthur loses the love of his queen, then his kingdom falls. Yes, there's a man in charge in this context. Um, he's not the one who's in charge and he only, only rules because of the love and, and kind of, um, you know, by consent of, of the embodiment of the goddess of the landscape. And so Morgan Le Fay in older versions of the myth, and she's, you know, way earlier, her references to her go back to like the 700s or something. And she's referenced as a healer. And then later you see her as this, you know, the evil woman who, um, like I think Sir Thomas Mo Mallory's Le Mort d'Arthur is kind of held up as like, this is the, the grail, you know, this is the Arthurian thing. And, and there's definitely a lot of great stuff in there. I think the, a lot of the writing is great, but this is like the 1500s and a lot of, um, like it's much more misogynistic, honestly, than, than the earlier um, versions. And so the early versions do have her as she's an enchantress. Um, in some versions, she's actually partnered with Merlin, not Arthur. Um, and and she's almost the, the feminine counterpart to Merlin. She's this semi-human, semi-not-human, um, you know, being who even in her evolution or de-evolution uh, as, as the, the bad girl um, and, and the, she's still the one driving the plot. Um, the conflict that she initiates, you know, in, in um, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, he gets to the end, the, you know, spoiler alert, but, he gets to the end and, and the whole thing has been set up like the green knight, the whole castle where, where the, the, you know, uh, the woman's trying to fuck him every night and he has to not do that. Um, and the whole thing has been set up by her and, and supposedly to, to frighten Guinevere. Um, but it's also this thing of like, okay, no conflict, no story. Um, no conflict, no growth. Oh, well, that's an important one. I mean, and that 
what you just said ties so beautifully back to what we were saying earlier about sex and and death and death of the little eye through exaltation of our collected unity. Uh, but if there was no conflict, no death of the eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so there's another, there's so many things, this is outside, this is not the grail thing, but but the, what is it? Night of the Lion, which I believe is about Sir Yvain um, or Sir Owain in the Welsh. So he goes insane at one point. This is also a common theme in, in Celtic mythology, like Merlin's origin story. The origin story of a lot of people is um, madness, that this is when they come into themselves is after a period of madness. Um, Merlin's prophetic ability is actually triggered by combat trauma. Um, he's on, you know, he's fighting, he's the court bard of some king and in the earliest tellings and they lose this battle badly and he sees everyone that he loves slaughtered and he flees into the wilderness and lives with the animals and learns the language of the birds and learns the language of the stars and and becomes the prophet Merlin. Um, and and Sir Yvain has a similar thing where he, he accidentally betrays this sort of fey woman that he's married to because, you know, he wants to go jousting and then he totally forgets about her. And then she comes back and just roasts him in front of everyone. She's like, how dare you forget about me? And he loses his mind and he similarly goes into the tears off all of his clothes and goes into the forest and lives with the animals like an animal. And, uh, and this, this woman finds him and she goes to her queen is like, is like, there's this guy who's just totally insane and naked in the woods, you know, what should we do? And, and so she's like, Oh, bring him this ointment that's made by Morgan Le Fay. And so she's kind of synonymous with She's like this fairy healer um, that, you know, her, and thinking about this now, there's an interesting thing for like, She's maybe also the one who causes madness, but also the one who heals it. Well, then that makes her an initiatrix mm-hmm. in my mind. So she's playing the role of the one who sends you into that dark night, but then guides you out of it. Mm-hmm. That you can't obtain the mysteries so long as you are complacent in your own you know, little mundane day-to-day life. Why would you want, why would you need to learn to speak to animals? Why would you need to learn the the language of the stars if you were sitting fat and pretty in your royal court all day? Yeah. I mean, this is, well, no, it's not off topic. I, I just think like, um, and I hope this is useful for someone listening who may be going through something you know, a period of destabilization. If you look at the greatest saints in Sufism, if you look at the greatest saints across many traditions, these were people often with horrific trauma. These were people often, um, Abdul Qadir Jalani founded the first organized Sufi order. And before he was a Sufi, he was so uh, he would have episodes where he also would flee to the 
the wilderness outside Baghdad, where the bandits who who lived there, you know, lying in wait to steal from people, were terrified of him because he was so insane. They called him Majnun. Um, that it is this thing of if your ego is working for you, then what fucking reason do you have to do all of the very difficult work of, you know, uh, refining it and allowing it to be digested by something larger? Yes, exactly. And actually, beautiful that we're talking about this on a on a Tuesday, on a Mars day, because to me, this is like the message of of spring being Aries, being that Mars time is how does the the sproutling break out of the seed, if not through violence, if not through something, some sort of hardship? Why is the will, the wands, that that drive to create and to complete and to build a, a spear, you know? Why is it a weapon? And I think that's because, again, like, why would we do anything other than Actually, I was watching Attack on Titan last night and um, season one. So I hope I'm not giving away any spoilers, but there was just a period where one of the commanders said to this rich guy, you know, I wish you a very good day of sloth and opulence, (laughs) you know, and it was just like a total insult. But at the same time, it's this commentary on the more abundance that you have, the less likely you are to accomplish something great. The more the more abundance that you have naturally thrown at your feet mm-hmm. that you don't have to work for. The yeah, I mean it's the it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven is God realization. And what fucking reason do you have to take the path seriously if everything's going your way? Which is, of course, you know, and I think people sometimes, especially, you know, some of my anti-capitalist friends and myself included at less developed points of time in my life, where you kind of want to hear that and you think no rich person can ever do it. Uh, you know, throw all your throw all your items away, be a complete aesthetic, be, you know, a monk, don't own anything. But it's actually just saying, you know, it's harder to do it. It's not saying you cannot have anything nice. It's just saying this is a, a detraction from the work. And you, and you could also, you know... A rich man, you know, that's kind of maybe more specific than than what's implied is it's more just a thing of like, you got to have a reason, right? Because like talking about the seed bursting through the soil. So there is this violence of the, the seed shell being destroyed. But there's also, you know, Mars and Venus are are so intertwined that it's like, what is it reaching towards? What is the impulse that draws the the you know, the, the seedling out of its safe shell. So there is the force, you know, and, um, you know, and penetration necessary for it to burst through that membrane. Um, but it's also being drawn by that Venusian force of magnetism and attraction. And so it's the simultaneous, you know, it's the, the chalice and the lance. 
Yeah, I mean, even just thinking about this imagery of the sprout bursting from the seed is a lance penetrating a womb. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's so funny. As above, so below, they say. <laughs> so, okay. Final, final thought process here. Re going back to what you said earlier about Sufism and the the love poetry of Sufism being a part of what inspired the romance tradition of Grail mythology, that sounds to me very much like an attempt to bring the divine feminine back to to say, okay, well, maybe the way that Christianity is presenting itself right now is very cold and actually therefore distant from God. Um, do you have any any thoughts on how, on that? Like, love, love in mysticism and maybe that being what created the longevity of the the myths and why we still feel so connected to them even to this day. I have so many thoughts. So uh, I just want to briefly retell The Night of the Cart by Christian de Troy, which is a Lancelot romance. So Guinevere gets, you know, abducted um, by this evil king and taken to this kind of otherworldly castle and hidden and no one knows where she is i think that there's this sort of reductive um historical materialistic analysis of these things that it's like oh look another damsel in distress like there's way more going on here than than that um you know guinevere is the divine presence it's like if you have the sort of masculine um, deity is aloof and transcendent and the formless absolute. And then the feminine is the imminent presence, the felt sense of God right here, right now in the body, in the sensory world. And so that gets lost, that gets taken. And so Lancelot, who, who is the lover of Guinevere goes, you know, all the knights go on this quest to go get her back every other knight is searching for is fighting for honor and they all fail the knight who succeeds is the one who is fighting for love and the, it's called the knight of the cart because there's this dwarf driving a cart that's like this cage with all these people who've done something bad and everyone's mocking them and throwing fruit at them and it's acknowledged that like oh these people are disgraceful disgusting degenerates and everyone you know, totally shameful. And so for the knights who honor is what they're fighting for. The dwarf says, if you want to know where Guinevere is, get in the cart. None of the other knights get in the cart. Uh, you know, and Lancelot hesitates because he's like, oh, I don't really, you know, I'm a knight. Everything's about honor. And he's like, you want to know, get in the cart. And he hesitates for another step. And then finally he gets in the cart. And he finally, you know, he goes on all these adventures, almost dies a million times. And he ends up, she's right over this, this river. Um, and there's two ways across. One of them will take longer, but is a little bit safer. But the shortest way is across the sword bridge. And that is, you know, this common um, Celtic Arthurian 
sort of trope of it's literally a sword that's like 50 feet long across this raging river. And so in order to cross the river and, and um, he has to take off his armor because he wouldn't be able to hold his grip otherwise. So he takes off his gauntlets, he takes off his whatever greaves, shin guards, whatever. And, and he crawls on hands and knees, cutting himself every inch. He's just pouring blood and nothing matters except the goddess. Nothing matters except his beloved. And he makes it across and he's just pouring blood. He's almost died a million times. And the evil king is like, all right, I'll fight you for her. But like, you're a mess. So like, I'll give you a month. And he's like, no, let's do it tomorrow. And then, but before they, you know, he wins her back heroically, uh, he sees her and she won't even look at him. She won't even speak to him. And he's like, oh, my beloved queen, like, you know, all these things. And she's just like, no. And then finally, you know, they reunite and, um, you know, it's this whole erotic thing. There's some elements of potentially like sexual ritual, like encoded in there. But he's like, why wouldn't you talk to me? And she's like, because you hesitated for two steps. And so, so going back to, to Sufism, so the root metaphor is not Lord and subject for the relationship of the aspirant to God. The root me metaphor is lover and beloved. Um, and the, the poems, you know, Rumi, this is a fact that no one really addresses. Rumi, um, Rumi did have an earthly beloved and he was a man named Shams. The, and that's translates to the sun. So you see, you know, when you see him referencing the sun and, but it's interchangeable, whether he's talking about his beloved Shams or whether he's talking about God, there's no distinction anymore. The earthly beloved literally is the divine beloved. And so, and you, and you look at um, Fakiruddin Iraqi, who's writing again in the 1200s, and he was a student of both Rumi and the successor to Ibn Arabi. And, and he's talking about, okay, so, so everyone can sort, not everyone, uh, Sufis acknowledge like, okay, when you finally meet the beloved, it's, om, it's often put as you realize there was no, never any lover there at all. There is no I, there is only you. But he takes it further and says, there is no beloved either. There is only love. That this is the holy trinity of the Sufis is love, lover, and beloved. And really, the only thing happening is, is subject and object. That entire split is an illusion. That's the primary sort of split in consciousness is I and not I. And so even the not I, even the that, you know, for which you go on the quest for that, for which you yearn in when you deepen into union experientially, not in belief, um, that disappears because whatever projection, whatever mask you had on that, that was bullshit, too. There's no one out there. There's no whoever it is that you're in love with. Like, this is just the play of consciousness and everything is running by love. Um, you know, Tristan Isolt's story 
of, you know, them drinking the, they sort of used this mechanism because it was like not really okay for them to fall in love. And so they're like, oh, they drink a magic potion that made them fall in love. Um, and it's this tragic story, but there is, uh, in some versions, you know, my teacher tells a version of the story that that's a little more, he, he takes some, some poetic license, but basically uh, he drinks this potion, you know, she's supposed to be betrothed to his uncle, the king. Um, and he realizes, like, he's told, like, you guys are in love now. You've ruined everything. This is going to cause you and her so much pain because she's going to be married to this king and both of you are going to be in love and it's going to be misery. And he's like, basically, like, I don't care. It will be worth it. I don't care how much I hurt. And that is that is something that that transformed the Western world, the proliferation of the telling of these stories. And I also think talking about asceticism, the one who attains the grail is not a monk. And these stories were often written by monks and they have a householder, a knight. You know, someone who has possessions, someone who falls in love and has sex and and, you know, uh, that's the one who who attains the grail. And so I think the the image of the night is more relevant than it's ever been, partially because esoteric chivalry is needed more than ever in human history, I think, um, because yes, we can, you know, attain, we can be magical and force our will on the world and we can do all these things. But esoteric chivalry is the, the oath, the vow that Knights of the Round Table take has, you know, a bunch of things, but only one of them does it say your life is forfeit if you don't do this. And that one thing is you must come to the aid of any woman in need. And that meant literally if there's an army of 10,000 threatening a single unarmed woman, you go die without a second thought. You know, it's, it's the possibility in human consciousness for the ego again, to be pushed aside and something more noble to step forward and act through the individual. Hmm. What good is your self honor? if the the other is being subjugated it even goes back to that same story of none of us are free so long as one of us is enslaved yeah and and there's you know we're culturally distrustful of of spiritual teachers and and practitioners and all these things for good reason because there's all these things where people legitimately attain high levels of consciousness people legitimately attain you know they can make the the you know the plant stone and they can uh you know all of these things they even attain god realization and still treat people like shit um and so it's this this emphasis on your conduct is the only thing that matters if you don't attain realization, but become a better person and show up when it really matters, that is far a far better outcome than the opposite. Oh, I love that. So when we say like uh, esoteric chivalry, 
even in the, the implication there is not just even an individual woman, but the the resurgence of, you know, an adherence to nature, a, a, a resurgence to returning back to a better a better harmonious balance between the ego and the other. Mm-hmm. Because all all the the passive feminine really is 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 a way to identify the other with the the solar you know masculine archetype being the the i and to have a harmonious balance between those two is the the implication of what crowley meant when he said love under will because my will as a self being is important sure and that's why of course you can find magicians who will become one with their will but maybe are still acting in a destructive way towards the all because if i don't love the other as much as i love myself or or have love for myself and other I will not be participating in the harmonious balance of hieroscamos. Yeah, love the Lord thy God and love thy neighbor as thyself. Those are the same thing. And ultimately, it's like, you know, the beloved Prophet Muhammad said, everywhere I turn, I'm looking to the face of my of God. And so everywhere I look, I'm looking into the face of my beloved. But if that's a belief, then it doesn't do me or anyone else any good. I have to bring it into the world of experience. I have to actually call forth the beloved in whatever it is that's before me consistently, repeatedly, over and over again. And to go back to Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, that's why Mary is painted on the inside of his shield. Because what is he fighting for? What is he looking at? what is his thought he is keeping the image of the beloved always before him love it and i mean of of course this also is why the 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 path of the monk is not really the path to achieve this because so long as i am afraid to taste the fruit of the garden then i am not exalting the garden with love i i'm exalting it with fear Mm -hmm. which is not not the same thing. And I love uh, even just going back to the story of um, that you told about Lancelot. I love this idea of because of the way the 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 trajectory that society has taken in order to love my beloved fully, I have to put myself in a position where other people will shame me because I will now be dancing with the devil, you know. <laughs> For, for lack of a better phrase there. Um, that is kind of the actual message behind the witch marrying the devil folk tales. It's more just about the witch allowing themselves to indulge in pleasure and saying, like, pleasure is a part of my beloved. Mm-hmm. Because if I'm, uh, if I'm saying pleasure is bad, then I am now quantifying a part of God as uh, uh, unpalatable, mm-hmm. which is absolutely not true, you know? And it's like, so there's this, you know, and people were martyred for saying this, like um, in, in Sufism. Arabic has a, and, and Persian have a much more sophisticated um, way of speaking about love. There's more words for love. They're more specific. 
Um, and, and I don't, there's like 20, I don't know all of them. Uh, but ishk is means passionate love. It means painful love. It means fiery love. It means lustful love. And, um, going back to Fakirdi Naraki, um, he developed this zikr, this, this remembrance or, or you could say mantra, um, taking la ilaha illallah, there is no God, but God, um, which is the normal, the normal zikr, the normal, also the, even the exoteric kind of creed of Islam. And he did la ilaha illal ishq. There is no God. There is only love. It's specific. It, ishq is spicy. Ishq is difficult. This is not this agape, totally pure, like, you know, only divine love. This is like, you know, heartbreak, you know, fantasizing about someone, jealousy, like these difficult uh, things. It's like, this is what we're going to work with alchemically. And this is what um, Ishq is the reason why the monastic tradition exists is because it's so difficult to work with. This is a volatile, this is not a safe path. This is a volatile thing. Um, and so most traditions historically, how they approach this issue of, of Ishq, of passion, was to remove it from the equation of being like, this is an obstacle because it can be very easily. You can get totally, uh, you know, you can spend years and years just chasing after whatever and, you know, uh, and, and not really get anywhere. And, um, and, and the, the Sufis not exclusively, but, but maybe most, most explicitly other than certain lineages of, of like, maybe like Shakta Tantra were like, no, this is the main thing. This is the entire path is whenever that flame gets lit, most, most mystics are like, Oh, I'm in trouble. And they're like, fuck yeah, break my heart open. You know? Yes. Yes. I love this. Oh, this is such a beautiful, beautiful conversation, Connor. I really appreciate you coming here and sharing this knowledge and this wisdom and something I've been wanting to talk to people about, you know, as I consider myself a, a bridal mystic. It's my own personal title. <laughs> um, so before I, I let people go, I always like to ask if you have any, any last words. No pressure, you can talk for as long or as little as you want, but instead of me asking a question, you just tell us what, what we need to hear. Um. I got a poem in, in Sufi fashion. I think it might be uh, appropriate to end with a poem. Nothing would make me happier. All right. So this is, um, so I recently did a, a solitary silent uh, Sufi retreat or halwa um, for six days. Um, highly recommend you know, like, obviously not, you know, this is a Sufi context, but like the first two days is just your mind unwinding. And then the last day 
is you being like, oh, I get to leave tomorrow. So six days is like you get maybe like two or three good days of like real retreat in there. Um, and so during that, you know, Sufism, similar to the Dionysian mysteries um, and many other things, uses this metaphor of wine um, as, you know, what are we doing? We're, uh, you know, you see it in Rumi, you see it everywhere. And, and they're not kidding. Uh, like, I was drunk, absolutely shit-faced on the divine presence for like hours at a time of, of just ecstatic, blissful, like absorption in the beloved. Um, and I, I wrote this during, during that because I was like, yeah, this is temporary. Um, but I want something, I want to, I want to save this so that maybe I, and, and maybe also other people could access some of this state, some of this experience. So this is the silsila of lovers. Silsila means, it mean, literally means chain, but it's like uh, in Sufism, it means like the lineage um, of like this person passed it to this person, passed it to this person, all the way back to uh, the Prophet Muhammad, and, uh, Hazrat Jibril or Archangel Gabriel and God. So this is the silsila of lovers. A spear from heaven, millions of years long, piercing the skull and on through the heart. My weeping chalice, my treasured chest, stuck languished in the wasteland, now renewed by light. Refreshed, flowers brought forth. The prophets, a quill. My heart, once blank, now a scripture in motion, fill my pages with ink. Before there was anything, there was everything. An infinite thirst can only be quenched from an infinite cup. Cherry blossoms and the curve of a cheek, I swear this is what woke Rama up. To lose the beloved taken from his presence by the demon of scattering. It is only through the breath that he gets her back only through the monkey tearing his own chest open. Jayadeva writes of the flowers on the trees as well. The flowers on the trees in spring, intoxicating perfume, Krishna celebrating a Eucharist of love with the milkmaids, drawn by his flute, dancing, dancing, a night dilated into billions of years, galaxies born and collapsing like dust blown off the cover of an old poem, building a moment out from the inside into a golden age. Radha, Radha, his chest sweats red passion for you. For every Krishna, a Radha, incarnation after incarnation. Shakti roils and riles herself in the dance, the jingle of her wrists, a pleading bell. Shiva, come lie with me, come down from your celestial fortress, come out of the void, smell this flower, touch this cheek, approach the, through the orchard and come to my opened window. But where now is Buddha's lover? Fled your wife and child, what beauty drew you on? Or was beauty annihilated, the vision of death and suffering your only goad? Buddha, tell me, who did you love and how did you embrace them? What liberation then can you hold for the poet in your silence? What other way but love? 
what other direction but deeper? The magician poet is so thirsty, so parched, they need only a spark and they burn to ash. The queen of Sheba would only embrace God, so Solomon became God. What grapes were pressed as their lights poured into each other. What immortal song leapt from his heart, left burning like a bush from her honeyed kiss. And who embraces all but God, death, and whores? Of course there is a price. The cost of love is death, and the cost of death is love. If we are to enter truly into life, all Christ's disciples fled except his beloved Mary Magdalene, weeping at the foot of the cross, flowers bursting forth where her tears fell. Crack the earth open, its heart a star, cascading color and sound, the scintillating rays exploding through every particle, the flower on the tree roars with divine majesty, the sound of a name, the curve of a cheek crack open the pomegranate and reveal its gems do not eat the shell eat the fruit hidden within there is no i there is only you i is your name all names are my name all lives are my life when i remember you my heart fills with wine the beauty of the eyes is the door to the beauty of the heart the eyes have never seen anything but the reflection of the heart. And when the dust is cleared from the heart, the eyes will see the beloved everywhere. God said, be, and I was. I said, be, and God is. If you make me real, I will make you the truth. Allahu Akbar, God is greater than whatever words I can come up with. Annihilation is hiding inside everything. Just a drop and you're gone. The God in the curve of a cheek or a flower on a tree is enough poison to kill. And what kind of lover is satisfied with only a drop? Die before death. God twirls my heart between her fingers like a pen, turning me towards her, turning me away, deciding what to write next. I've become a bed of flowers and a heart made of heat without source or cage or form. You don't know me. You don't even know yourself. You cannot know yourself except through me. So tell me, what do you see in this mirror? I am only a throne for the one heart. That heart rushes through shades and colors like a chameleon. I am tired of the stories I make up to justify the changes. I'm more attracted by the beauty of her colors. The teacher is a blade in the hands of the beloved, cutting away all that is not love. The teacher is a hammer in the hands of God, driving the soul deeper and deeper into her. When she was an idea, I circled her. When she is living, she circles me. It is not enough to say I alone am or she alone is. Better to say what I hunt is hunting me. I'm tearing up, basically. <laughs> That was so beautiful. I feel immensely honored that you chose to share that with us realistically. That was amazing. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, this was a joy. Um, so. Thank you.